Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Hello and welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. Hi! Hello and joining us this evening, she is the UK editor of Denna Geek, it's Rosie Fletcher. Rosie, hi. Hi there. <laughs> hey Rosie, hi and uh, what a film choice. Uh, Mitch, gonna just go out on a limb here and say this is your first time. It is my first watch. Uh, it's an M. Night Shyamalan blind spot for me. You've gone back to 2008 and chosen The Happening. Obviously no longer a blind spot. My first viewing of this concluded about 20 minutes ago. Rosie, when I told you what the format was for this, mm. uh, there were no other alternatives on the list. You just immediately shot back The Happening. Now, this is a hell of a call. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about your relationship with this film, how you came across it and why you chose it tonight. Indeed. Um, although, Mitch, I'm dying to hear what you think about it, seeing it now <laughs> for the first time. I'm so, 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 so excited to hear what your first watch had in store. But yes, this film was really precious to me, partly because, so I was working at a magazine, a now defunct magazine called DVD Review. Oh, uh, right. And it was my, my first magazine job. No, not my first magazine job, but my first film magazine job. And it was a, it was a magazine about a format, which obviously <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Um, and then it was called DVD and Blu-ray review Uh and then it folded obviously so I was working there I'd only been there for about a year and that job for me was like the most exciting thing I'd ever done in my life it was just like this is just heaven and so when this film was coming out I remember writing about it I remember writing previews and getting to see I've got I've still got a check disc of it and being (laughs) so excited and then um, unfortunately everybody trashed it and uh, I think they're wrong. I really do. I knew that this film existed, and I had a like I had a rough idea what it was about going in. I didn't realise that the critical reception for this one was quite so unilaterally negative. Yeah, <laughs> my feelings on it were probably like fairly mixed. But um, Andy, how did you come to this one? Did you see it when it came out in the first instance? Or? I did. I saw it in the cinema actually. Okay. <laughs> I saw it at the the Odeon at the Key here in Glasgow, I believe, if <laughs> I remember correctly. Um, and uh, yeah, I. <laughs> I, I think I had gone into it kind of off the back of most of the stuff that had come before being all right and relatively interesting, except for maybe uh, Lady in the Water, which isn't great. And I remember around about the 30 minute mark, maybe you could hear audible sighing in the cinema and you could hear laughter. And there is some stuff, I think, that's intended to draw laughs in this, but it wasn't those bits people were laughing at. I mean, I think it's very funny. Um, <laughs> I think the problem people have with it, although, again, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't have a problem with it, mm-hmm. um, is that it's, a very, it's, it's very inconsistent in its tone. It's not all the way funny, and it's not all the way scary, and it's not all the way tragic. And you will have moments like, as I rewatched it as well, <laughs> Mark Wahlberg standing outside this blocked-up house, singing a little song, and then going, we are normal, see? <laughs> and then a child getting shot point-blank in the head in front of an eight-year-old. It's like, hmm, 
Okay, interesting. Um, I, like that's yeah, that's something that I came up against as well when I was watching it. We'll dig it as we go, but I, that does seem to be kind of like a recurring kind of theme in some of the negative stuff that I've read about it. Also, just took a sec to take a look because uh, I was kind of wanted to see where this sat on the M Night Shyamalan timeline. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like, yeah, in 2004, he'd done The Village, which was, I think, the only other M. Night Shyamalan film we've covered on the show back in episode seven with Graham Skipper. And then it was yeah. Lady in the Water, like Sandy, which was, like, kind of generally regarded as not being too hot. Post the happening, I think it's fair to say that there was a fair slump because you've got The Last Airbender and After Earth. Yeah. <laughs> and then, it kind of obviously, you kind of pulled into the kind of critical renaissance that he's had a little bit kind of after that. So, this is kind of an interesting midpoint one. But, Rosie, we make everyone who comes on this show do one thing. Uh, you are no exception for the benefit of anyone that is listening that hasn't seen the happening how do you feel about giving us a 30 second synopsis after a, um, a three count I'm, not, I'm allowed to time it do i have to time it we will I'll be, be timing i it, will yes. be timing it i am uh, for the purposes of this i will be the master of time so i do have 30 seconds on the clock okay, okay. right three two one go uh, okay mark Wahlberg plays a science teacher um married to uh, zoe deschanel who's sort of a space cadet of some sort. Um, <laughs> this disaster happens in Central Park where people suddenly uh, lose their sense of speech and then start killing themselves. And initially everybody thinks it's a terrorist attack, um, like neurotoxins or something. And then, so Wahlberg and his best friend and uh, his wife and this child decide to go to, to move Time. to- Oh no, that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I think, I think, like, scene setting is just about there, oh, I would say. Yeah, it, sure. it, it kind of becomes a kind of post apocalyptic sort of road movie after that. Yeah. Um, I In think. short, it was the wind, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Effectively, yeah. Also, I've just discovered in my kind of impromptu M. Night Shyamalan research there that he uh, did rewrites on the script for She's All That. Wow, okay. <laughs> did not know that. Did not care to know that. And yeah, now I know that. Yep, no one is richer for having that information, but there it is anyway. <laughs> um, so we kind of, I, I was watching this and this is zero fault of the film whatsoever. It's just amazing how quickly I thought, um, when I saw the title cards for this, it's amazing how quickly things like title cards can start to look and feel their age. Mm. that's not a film thing that's a time thing but i think it's amazing how quickly these things can start to look a little bit dated mm. that was kind of the least concerning thing about the credits to us to me is just kind of they're looking a bit dated watching it again this is the first time i've watched it, i think since i saw it in the cinema and immediately i was like oh scary wind like the faster those clouds moved the more the more i started to remember your antagonist in this while it may be born from plants it's essentially characterised by wind. Mm. Yeah, there's a line where he says, we've got to stay ahead of the wind. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. No, I don't know how you do that. Like Sometimes, because I'm often watching these in time-sensitive situations and trying to scribble notes while I'm watching them, I sometimes write down points where I have questions and uh, that line is one of them, but we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, we are in Central Park, 8.33 in the morning uh, for the kickoff on this. Uh, we happen on two women on a park bench reading. One of whom is Kristen Connolly, who would obviously go on to star in The Cabin in the Woods, yes. House of Cards and things like that. Credited here only as girl reading on bench. I think that, obviously, like we kind of get our first glimpse of the biology and how the virus if you like plays out this is the first of loads of deaths in this that i think are really good mm. um because you, you kind of you, you see her kind of friend having this disorientation and then pulling a knitting needle from her hair and jamming it into her throat it's absolutely horrifying i think yeah i think the start of this actually i think really anytime you see any deaths on screen it's all brilliant like that's 
to me, some of the strongest stuff in the film. When it comes down to kind of interpersonal relationships and individual bits of dialogue, to me, that's where the film struggles and the tone kind of gets a bit jumbled. But here, certainly in the early run, in like this first half an hour, I think there's a lot of really strong stuff in here. Yeah, I totally agree. And the bit on the, um, so just after the scene on the bench, we see those construction workers Mm. and their co-workers falling from the sky. And I think that um, the film, or certainly the, some people were nominated for some award for that sequence, but I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Like Mm. really, really harrowing and really kind of beautiful at the same time. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, and later on, there's another uh, death scene where the group encounters loads of people hanging from, like they've hanged themselves. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's like a group of gardeners or something. in the the Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, what what a moment, what a scene. I think the opening of this film is so, so strong. And you're right, like that moment where the first kind of construction worker kind of hits the ground and everyone's around him. He's in a bad way, I think it's fair to say. And then they just start, one after the other, just splatting Mm. down around them. It's truly, truly horrifying stuff. And that's right out, like you say, Mitch, right off the back of that girl stabbing herself right in the neck. And there's a lot of really nasty little moments in isolation, like the bit with the guy in the zoo and the bit with the massive lawnmower. Like, all that stuff's really, really nasty and really well done and really effective. I think it's just, um, this was Shyamalan's first R-rated movie. Mm, was it? Yeah. Gone mm. out, yeah. I guess that checks out. Also, yeah, this film uh, this film did uh, bloody lawnmower incidents before Sinister made it cool. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but th- this film's a bit more uh, unflinching in that than Sinister is. Yeah, I think that's fair. I th- but yeah, I think that Rosie, you're spot on. I think that the, I-, I thought the construction worker scene in particular, when they all kind of start raining from the sky, that's probably in terms of because this film manages a fair few kind of like very harrowing, large scale death scenes like that, and I think mm. that's probably the one that lands the best. Uh, something funny happened while I was watching this, which was like um, you know, when you watch something on Amazon, I rented this to watch it tonight. When um, if you hover your mouse over it, you get the kind of cast list, the X-ray thing, uh-huh. um, with all the characters in the scene and the actors' names. There was three characters. Um, when I moved my mouse, and it was like construction worker, construction foreman, etc. And literally the second that the first guy dropped into scene, mangled construction worker just popped up <laughs> next to them. I noticed there's a lot of cast in the credits who are just credited for various things that happened to them and various <laughs> places they might be standing or sitting. I want to talk about the decision to cast Mark Wahlberg as an academic. <laughs> yeah, so like he is notoriously bad mm. in this, but I don't I don't know that it was entirely his fault. And I, I think that's where like that it's kind of played for laughs, but I think maybe people don't realise because of the juxtaposition of these absolutely horrific deaths. So mm. like really early on, like in one of his first scenes, he's like, Oh God, did you read that New Yorker article? Blah blah blah. And it's like, you know, so he's, he's saying, you know, why might it be that the bees have disappeared? And one of the kids says, uh, a random act that we will never know. And science teacher Mark Wahlberg says, correct. (laughs) 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 You're like literally the worst science teacher of all time. (laughs) You think that if that's a good thing to be teaching your children. So even from those early doors, you have to kind of accept that this is going to be a bit weird, I guess. Like, why do you think that? Why do you think the bees are dying? Is it an act of God, Mister Science Teacher? Absolutely, yes. a plus. <laughs> and also, much to answer your question as to why he's here at all, I suppose, is that the role was written with him in mind. Interesting, because I think he's just not very good at being an everyman, and like, so I think that's where the the strangeness comes in. Um, but it, but that, like, watching it again, 
not so kind of deeply attached as I was in my mm. early Jedi days. He's really funny. Like that bit where he's standing there and they're saying, and all the people are shooting, they're shooting themselves. And his wife's going, oh, we're not going to be these people who stand. And he's going, just let me think a minute. And it's a big <laughs> his nose. And it's just really funny. <laughs> yeah, I think that like, uh, you've kind of hit the nail on the head when you said that. I think that he's just, he's just not a good shout for an everyman no for a whole bunch of reasons oh, oh is he because the thing is if it was written for for him right you've got this character who is the worst scientist science teacher ever whose obsession <laughs> is with him a mood ring he's like that's not a toy he literally treats that mood ring like it is some ancient <laughs> artifact that bears deep meaningful power rather than some piece of tat that costs you like five dollars from someone from some street vendor <laughs> Exactly, that he's like places more sway in a mood ring than actual science. And like is thrown into the middle of this kind of disaster where he's supposed to be what of some use to anyone. That like this is the thing. I don't mean to jump around, but like No no please. Um his best friend is played by and please forgive my pronunciation, John Legiziamo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Now he's brilliant. And the trouble is, he's in a different movie. So <laughs> his character, yeah. you feel him. He's a real person. You know, and that point where he's got to leave his child and go on this mission to, to find his wife. I mean, you know it's probably not going to work. It's really sad. It's genuinely sad. Yeah. But stopping him, maths teacher, by the way, which mm-hmm. a good maths teacher, against bad science teacher Mark Wahlberg is a very odd... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an odd combination. It's, it is like they're in completely different films. Yeah, a couple of the performances in here kind of feel like they're in silos. We kind of, I think we kind of come across more of them as we go. But yeah, I think in terms of kind of like the things he puts stock in, considering he's a science teacher, I feel like if we'd watched that classroom for any, for like five minutes longer, they would have whapped out a magic eight ball. <laughs> but like, um, I also think it's really funny when there's like this kid in the class who he kind of says, oh, you're a heartthrob now, but like soon your face will be ravaged by the passage of time and you'll be unsightly. Yeah. 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 And then jokes on you, you're just going to kill yourself in the next 20 minutes anyway. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> However, it's all a moot point because you're about to horse yourself off a bridge. Maybe for yeah. that particular character who wears his aggressive handsomeness like on his sleeve and is defined by it, perhaps that's for the best, given that we do address the fact that he will be ravaged by time. <laughs> well, so his performance in this is much more akin to his performance in, like, say, Ted than it is <laughs> to, like, you know, any of his kind of macho man roles. I don't think we were ready for comedy Wahlberg, and I don't think we knew what we were getting, quite honestly. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think this film was ready for comedy Wahlberg. Uh, but see, uh, bringing comedy Wahlberg into this film at all so quickly after all the unpleasantness that we've just seen is wild. Wild and uh, like you start to kind of get hints of it in that classroom scene. Then in the next scene, where Alan Rock's kind of telling them about uh, like Mitch, I don't know if you noticed the three stages that were in there uh, of this of this disease. Oh, it just um, brought back memories to me, lovely memories of the other week when we did body melt. Body probably melt, yeah. probably don't less s- fun for you. Yeah, don't start. But uh, yeah, no, it was um, uh, yeah, confused speech, physical disorientation, and then you kill yourself. I believe yeah. for our stages one to three. But yeah, the class is interrupted, and we get see one thing I did spot is there is so much exposition in this on the TV and on the radio. Yeah, that's because no one anywhere has any idea what's happening, and everyone's kind of living 
in cars and just stumbling blindly through fields. Like, everyone's relying on what are unreliable narrators because no one has a fucking clue. Like, even at the end, no one knows what's going on. Yeah, and like, weirdly, watching it in a pandemic, I actually quite like that about it because it is just people going, oh, we think it's this, we think it's that, and, and nobody has a, a fucking clue. And um, <laughs> so you have conspiracy theorists and you have, like, the, the plants guy, he turns out to be right. He's just saying stuff really isn't he um <laughs> and i sort of thought that kind of and the, the, just quickly on the plants guy i thought he was such an interesting one as well because he was clearly given like he's a he is exposition guy yeah. massive exposition 100%. but then they're like okay well we don't want him to be exposition guy so what else what else can there be about him hot dogs hot yeah. dogs he yeah. really likes hot dogs yeah and also the bit where she's his wife says to him oh um reach over and get those binoculars they're in the back from when you were spying on the neighbors like just Throw away with <laughs> He's the character I wish we'd spent more time with. Like yeah. from the start of this. Like the guy at the start of Armageddon who kind of sees the big rock coming, you're like, I want to spend more time with that guy, like rather than the, the, he, he the roughneck been, guys. Yeah, he would have been a much better science teacher than Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> but, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of curious that we know about that guy that um he has a family, he owns a very large plant nursery. He has a real a real fondness for hot dogs. Uh, potentially has either voyeuristic or kind of vigilante leanings, depending on what he was using those binoculars for. Um, but he also doesn't get a name. Mm. He's, cre- he's credited as plant nursery owner. <laughs> and he's like he's possibly like maybe the third or fourth most significant character in the whole thing. Mm. It's interesting, though, that you wouldn't introduce yourself to someone who you were going to spend that much time with on the road until their untimely demise. Yeah. I mean, I mean like, it's possible that his character name is Plant Nurseryman. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what like american names like it's like oh this is my mate plant all right yeah yeah i'd get on that train if somebody said that yeah did, did you also notice that one of his key kind of talking points about hot dogs was that they have a fun shape <laughs> well they do have a fun shape <laughs> yeah. it is a weird thing to like you know this is an hour and a half this film it's you know it's not like a really long film like of all the bits of dialogue, it's like, no, we've got to get the bit in about the hot dog and the shape of the hot dog. Like, that's going to be in there. When we're kind of learning a little bit about how widespread this is, we do see another kind of, like, we see this happening in another part of the country, namely it's in um, Philadelphia. Again, I think that the way that this is done, given that, like, you know, like you couldn't really have people being, like, very graphically shooting themselves in the head in rapid, rapid succession, I think that the way that this is done is really cool as well when it kind of follows the gun. Yeah. Mm. Presumably um, that's the same thing that happens later off camera in that field. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's such a great callback, isn't it? Yeah. And this kind of goes against the things that I tend to like about films like this. But I think that, like, this this film does its best work when it's dealing with these kind of, like, big harrowing visuals and the big kind of set pieces and stuff like that. I think that those were the things that kind of kept me engaged. Mm-hmm. It's because um, you know that the next one's never far away. If you think of the wind as, like, your slasher, any time you see the trees rustling or a bit of wind blowing through the grass... You know that something generally quite harrowing's about to come, the same as you would do if Jason Voorhees was lurking about in someone's house. Yeah. That's true. And also, um, we established quite early on that nobody is safe. So, so when the, the two kids are killed, and when they're both shot, mm. it's like, wow, you're just going to kill a couple of kids. It's, it just means that there is a sense of peril. It doesn't mean that our protagonists are necessarily going to live. So, with, And with you know Julian John Gizziamo's death, it's like, well, you don't know. And that does add you know, a decent level of tension to it. Absolutely agree. Like, And this this is a weird thing that I've said a couple of times on this show, but I, like, I have a lot of time for films that are blasé about killing children. 
<laughs> Which is a weird thing to say in isolation, but I think that to tie in with what you said, Rosie, I think that like there is no clearer way to, for like a film to let you know that it's not fucking about in terms of like its willingness to just kill people off. Mm. Um, I want to talk about Zoe Deschanel in this. Oh. Um, as Alma, okay. Elliot, Mark Wahlberg's wife. I generally, I would say, like, historically, I don't mind Zoe Deschanel and stuff. Um, I really struggle with her here, and I would mm. quite like to get a read on what everyone else makes of this. Well, I don't really like her normally, I'm afraid. I, basically, I, it's the new girl persona that I find absolutely intolerable. Okay. Um, mm. That kind of manic pixie dream girl thing. Although I do really like her in Elf, so there's always exceptions. But here... <laughs> I don't think I don't really like her because I don't like that manic pixie dream girl thing. But yeah. I don't think she's a bad actress. So dis- decisions have been made here. Like she is awful, Oof. or she isn't awful, and she's been told to be like that. Because if we take if we understand this as being like um, it's like a fifties B movie, mm-hmm. it's maybe that she's kind of aping performances of very stupid sort of ditzy women who might have been wives and girlfriends in those films. Mm, okay. Yeah, and I had read somewhere that round about the time that this film came out, like just before the kind of reviews hit, M. Night Shyamalan came out and said, oh, uh, what we've done here is we've made a B-movie. And to me, that's never run quite true with this film because I don't think it leans into the B-movie thing enough for me to believe that. It just feels like a very muddled, like a very tonally muddled film that can never quite decide what it's going to be. So I, I I don't necessarily feel personally that Zoe Deschanel's character is playing up to that B-movie trope, but I, I just generally feel like... Because I don't think she's necessarily a bad actress either. I just think that she's doing a particularly bad job here. I think there's points here where she's nigh on unwatchable. Yeah, I, mean, I would tend to tend to agree. And like, but it does feel deliberate in some way, even if it isn't in the B movie sense. Even just that very first time you see her, it's this shot of her big eyes and sort of slightly open mouth, looking absolutely like dumb. Yeah, I think I think that like um, whether or not it's those choices that are definitely choices being made there. Yeah. I want to talk about the fact that obviously because what happens kind of basically out here is that it's t- like New York City is being evacuated. Yeah. So uh, Elliot and Alma, Zoe Deschanel, and John Leguizamo's character Julian yeah. and his daughter Jess, they all leave. See, when they're just getting ready to go and they're leaving the university, I think it's hilarious when it's like, this is the start of like, at this point we think it's a terrorist attack. And um, Mark Wahlberg and John Leguizamo are leaving. And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to get a hold of Alma. She, Alma, she's been acting really weird lately and really distant. And John Leguizamo, at this point of, like, absolute peak, like, terror level is, like, critical. And John Leguizamo's like, have I ever told you about that time on your wedding day when I found her in a room by herself crying? <laughs> <laughs> and then all of them get on a train together. But yeah, that's another example of, like, the, the very strangeness of this film. So then she's all like, oh, I don't even want to sit with you on the train, even though terrorist attack. And then later she's like, I had a tiramisu with some bloke. And like he's like devastated. And then later he's like, well, I almost bought some cough medicine from a hot pharmacist. Like, what the fuck? It's like, and yes, are we supposed to be crying by the end when, when they get together and I, if I'm going to die, I'd rather die with you. You've just talked <laughs> about my most hated point in the whole film, Rosie, when he does that bit about the pharmacist and the cough medicine. Right. We may as well plot this bit end to end at this point because yeah, there's during the first part of this, there is this kind of thing where Zoe Deschanel has had this uh, one night tiramisu stand with a guy where like it's it's but it's kind of framed as being this kind of and I think you're obviously you're you're kind of you see her being kind of twitchy and on the phone to the guy being like we ate tiramisu and that's that and I'm kind of assuming that like the fact that that's being treated as being this kind of huge seismic event in their relationship is supposed to be funny and it did make me laugh. But yeah, when she confesses to him about it when they're walking later and i was just like 
oh, presumably he's going to be like, oh, it's not a big fucking deal. It's like, it's tiramisu, you're fine. But he's like almost <laughs> tearful at that point. He's like, you lied? And he's then you like- see him just having this kind of like moment to himself, which I thought was odd. You never um, eat tiramisu with me. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's also like, I just think it's quite unbelievable that when it's like, I've just I've literally watched hundreds of people die and you had a pudding with some bloke. Like, whatever. It doesn't matter. Aye. Time and a place. Also, less than there, just be honest if you're just going for pudding with someone. Save yourself a lot of trouble down the line. It's the same thing that Billy Peltzer, the same mistake Billy Peltzer makes in Gremlins 2 is that he lies about it when he goes to that weird Canadian restaurant. Just be honest. Just go for your pudding. Yeah, so kind of later on when he's kind of like after this has kind of had a time to bed in yeah he's, he tells this story about him almost buying a six dollar jar of cough setup from a hot pharmacist um i mark this down as a question point sure. um what, what's what's going on here i think this is like if this was a different movie and i do love this movie don't get me wrong mm-hmm. it is obviously problematic so there's the bit earlier on where he says to the hot boy you're gonna get ugly and disgusting when you're old and then the boy, oh my god! And he's like, ha ha ha, joking. It's like that's not funny at all. That's just really horrible. And you're in a position of authority. <laughs> then he's like, so then he says to his wife, oh by the way, I almost bought some cough mints and I didn't even have a cough. <laughs> and she's like, oh god, oh my god, are you joking? And he's like, yeah. And it's like, what we learn from this is Mark Wahlberg's character has a horrible sense of humour. He's <laughs> aggressively not funny and like just doesn't understand humour at all. <laughs> Yeah, his humour, uh, he has no kind of grasp of propriety for when things are, like, for when a joke is called for or asked for. It's just, I'm just going to make light of this horrible situation right now as gunshots and screams echo in my ears. Yeah, quite. And it's also just the so stupidly inconsequential nature of it, like she would even care. It's like he's gone, do you know, when I was a kid, I had a dog called Fred. Did you? No. Like, <laughs> what's the point? That's not funny. Um, at the conclusion of the first act of this film, Zoe Deschanel was averaging it, saying, "I don't like to show my emotions out loud once every eleven minutes." <laughs> <laughs> and we get a really, like, a really great set piece after, because obviously when they're on the road here, like the the journey gets stopped midway. Wahlberg is furious, but basically, like, um, they explain to him that they've lost contact with uh, the Everyone. end destination. Yeah, with everyone, yeah, but like, so there's no guarantee it's a safe place, so they're stopping here because there is no ostensible mass suicides going on, so they probably are better off there. When they assemble in the diner, um, and you see the video footage of the guy who kills himself by wandering around in the tiger enclosure, that is brilliant. Amazing. At the same time, excuse me, random woman I've never met, please don't show me graphic footage of a man being mauled by lions while I'm trying to have something while I'm trying to kind of grab a snack. <laughs> Tell me that you did find that funny. That's funny. It's funny, but uh... it was it was amazing. <laughs> so I guess one thing that kind of was a momentum dragger for me as this goes on is the amount of kind of like dotting from location to location that has to happen. But again, this kind of like th- this story necessitates that, I guess. Mm. So I kind of feel like that's more of a personal problem of mine than anything else. But this is the first inkling of where people start to split up. Everyone starts pursuing their own idea of what they think a good idea is for getting to safety. Mm. Um. So. Alma, Elliot, Julian, and Jess, the big four, get left behind here. And this is where we meet the plant nursery owner guy, who I'm going to try and find some kind of shorthand for. We can just call him plant if you like. PNG. PNG, yeah. But yeah, we meet him. And I think that, like, 
one, this is a good character introduction, and two, I really like this guy in general. I understand, like we say, we, he's obviously, he becomes kind of like a ride-along exposition character as it goes on, but I've not got a particular problem with that because I actually find him far more watchable than most other people in this. Yeah, I would agree. I don't really know the actor, but yeah, I thought he was really sort of, yeah, good and funny and practical and kind, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Did you notice how often by this point in the film we had said the word happening? Yes, yes, all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the edge of my seat. <laughs> yeah, it's at this point that he kind of talks about his love of hot dog. This is a curiously comedic interlude, given that this is Im- followed immediately, like literally in the next scene, with uh, John Leguizamo's character's uh, death. Everything in that scene with John Leguizamo when he turns up in Princeton mm. is horrible and sad and depressing, and it's one of the strongest stretches of the film. I mean, he he's the emotional heart, isn't he? It's not, it's not Elliot and Alma, it's him. Yeah, you know, yeah. him like knowing that his daughter will be safe and not with him and knowing that he cannot not go and see his wife even though you know prognosis is not good it's yeah it's it's incredibly sad and when yeah. he's saying to the woman in the car like don't look out the window don't look out the window look at me do this mass puzzle you know that that felt real that felt like real panic of course then it's like a hot dog scene or whatever <laughs> yeah, like, uh, but I, I think that it's 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 a shame that we we lose him so early. But it's also a shame that his conflicts aren't the ones that we watch play out in this. Because mm. I think, that, like, kind of on paper, they're they're more compelling than the ones that we do see. I think um, it's a strong move, actually, though, to get rid of him that early. Uh, I think it's it's a bold thing to do, and I think it's an important thing to do for the rest of the film. Now that I mean, there comes a point after this where. I think everyone kind of accepts that anyone who's no longer in their eye, like in their eye line, is dead, and I think that kind of increases the urgency for Elliot and Alma to protect Jess. I have a question. Mm-hmm. So when hot dog guy, mm-hmm. he he says to Alma, um, "You do like hot dogs, don't you?" And I think she says no. I think she shakes her head, yep. which is odd. And then later, and I know she doesn't like to. Uh, I know she doesn't like to share her feelings, but. <laughs> Right, later, I know I'm jumping forward a bit, but we're in the farm with the old woman. And, and, you know, at this point, the three of them, they're all starving. And the old woman says, I hope my meal has been, you know, sufficient. And she says literally nothing. It's like rude just say thanks yes it was sufficient. uh-huh like i think i think that like i think that like not being big on talking about your feelings doesn't preclude the ability to show people kind of like basic courtesy yeah yeah you, you're feeling you your feelings on food don't really give away anything about yourself you're not opening yourself up to any kind of heartache or hurt by telling someone that you enjoyed something that they made you or that you enjoy wearing a specific pair of trainers like you're not gonna no one's gonna come down hard on you for that no, it's very odd. And actually, like, she and he have this very weird sort of childlike quality. Did you think mm, that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, there's this very odd bit where they see a house in the distance and she says, uh, Jess needs to sleep for 10 minutes and eat. And Jess hasn't said anything. And um, Elliot's like, well, shouldn't we get going? And he's like, she's like, no, she's eight. She needs to sleep and eat. And it was almost like she was channeling Jess. They then had some kind of freakish telepathy relationship was a very odd moment it was weird uh-huh it's, it's, it's like very specific and very kind of like militant about that precisely happening then mm. yeah i Ver- wonder if they're deliberate in that childishness because you know like the whole we had a first date and i bought you a, a mood ring and it's like what are you 12 <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a bit odd uh-huh and like and also like i i i, I thought early on like some some of the stuff that um zoe deschanel was given to say is really strange when she's like oh i don't talk about my feelings and now i'm upset and things like that and it's just kind of like and i was like you talk about things like a child talks about things 
And and sim and yeah, and like I went out for pudding with another boy. Like again, that's a very childish way of cheating on someone. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, like so, so, like like who gives a fuck? <laughs> like you're fine. Like, like yeah, I don't know. Like I, I yeah, I don't know. Like, pretty much, pretty much everything about that character and performance just kind of baffles me. I like it just it leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Put it that way. I want to talk about the fact that the group talk about what they're going to do next. We kind of, we kind of assemble another kind of like briefly, we're going to meet this group. Ultimately, a lot of them die. But um, a realtor basically, when they're kind of pops up and talks about where they're going to go and what they can do. And he says that he knows about a place that isn't on the main map called Arendelle. And I was just like, ah, cool. They're going to the fictional Scandinavian principality from Frozen. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound nicer than here. <laughs> If you close your eyes and wish really hard, we could all be there. Uh, yeah, it's so, that's such a weird decision as well for the, the soldier to bring in the knowledge of a realtor. And um, obviously the soldier is Kendall Roy out of Succession. Uh-huh. Ah, okay. And I'm obsessed with Succession, so I was like, oh my God, Kendall Roy. But another wild and childish performance as well. And he's also in um, Trial of Chicago 7. And Oh, he is a really good actor, that guy. Like, mm. he is excellent. So, again, that is not him not being able to do that. That's him. That's somebody making a decision. Kind of feeling like we're drawing a causal line between some of these performances, guys. <laughs> <laughs> kind of feel like a theory is emerging here. Also, um, extremely fortuitous that all roads lead to this one crossroads. Well, that's not fortuitous at all, actually, that all roads lead to, lead to a crossroads. But interesting that <laughs> just loads crossroads are, work, like, yeah. everyone just arrives there at exactly the right moment to form this massive group on yeah. which will ultimately... See, there's a lot of stuff here that just doesn't make much sense to me at all. Like, So we kind of come to learn that the more people that are together trudging over grass the more angry the plants get. But it seems inconsistent. Like, one person maybe dies later from that. I think the old lady, does she not? Or is that just, is she just generally yeah. unwell? No, she dies from it, I think. Yeah. So again, like, I know this is a bit annoying and all with hindsight, pandemic and whatever, but we are all living it. Mm. But essentially, this is a film which is like, there's this thing that is randomly out there in the air, which is killing everyone. Mm. And so everybody in The Happening decides to go out and be together and that's literally the worst thing you could do because, like, the old lady was perfectly all right when she was at home on her own. Mm-hmm. She's completely yeah. fine. So if everybody had essentially done self-isolation, you probably would have been all right. Like, oh. you know, it's because it starts in the park and then it moves yeah. to the other park and then it's massive groups of people judging through fields, whereas if it was just, like, you and your mate sitting in your house, yeah. I mean, it depends how many pot plants you've got, I guess. So, <laughs> speaking of which, the way the scene where uh, Mark Wahlberg talks at length uh, to that plastic plant is pretty funny. It is funny, yeah, and that's kind of one of the reasons, like, like, because this got a battering when it came out, like a yeah. real battering. And I sort of, I, I totally accept all of your points about the performances, and it's totally jarring. But like, it didn't, it doesn't deserve, you know. So everyone's like, basically, I think the things like that scene are the reason why it became like almost fashionable to give this a, a massive kicking because it was mm. easy because yeah. it's like mm. Wahlberg talks to a plant they run away from the wind I mean like <laughs> I mean when you put it like that it's quite funny I, I think it's low hanging fruit isn't it <laughs> <laughs> another thing is like obviously you're kind of talking about the fact that like this film can't settle on a tone fair enough right but like I feel like if it did settle on a tone then not all of the things that you single out as criticisms are criticisms anymore because obviously like some of the wrongs that we've talked about would be righted if they were fitting into something that flowed a little bit more cohesively but because it doesn't, it just all looks weird. Mm. Mm. 
I don't think that the overall piece is as bad as it's made out to be because I think that there's probably choices in there that would have worked if that had been resolved. You know what I mean? Yeah, so for me, it's a four-star first half, a two-star second half. That equals three stars. There you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's a succinct summation there. That's yeah. Yeah, we do we do get some kind of like some kind of I stuff about the science and the biology of the virus that I find quite confusing. This is where the wind gets introduced as a factor, and then they're trying to figure out whether or not it's large groups that is kind of triggering it, or if it's the wind itself. This mm. is where uh, Rosie, the one you mentioned earlier about staying ahead of the wind, mm. uh, kind of comes into play. That that part is like it, it seems like kind of silly but like the actual rules of the virus were quite confusing to me but i guess also it's arguable that that was the point um i think again if we're being generous mm-hmm. yes that is the point mm-hmm. and if it links back to um terrible terrible science teacher elliot and his bees issue i think the point is that nobody knows yeah. it's a random act of god that we will never be able to explain which is what he says about the bees at the beginning and i think that's the you know and then at the end it's like oh well it's probably gone, or it might not be. Don't know. Yeah, that's what the, those two guys, <laughs> those two guys that we see on the telly at the end, kind of tying everything up in a in a nice little bowl. They're kind of saying that's pretty much what they're saying exactly. Is that we don't know why it happened. We it could have been the government. People they, they still kind of espouse some of that conspiracy theory, um, mm-hmm. but they're basically saying again it happened. The happening happened. We don't <laughs> know why it happened. Could it happen again? Maybe was it a kind of shot across the bow as a warning? Maybe. But the rest of the film's just kind of speculating on that, and I guess you kind of would do without the kind of benefit of laboratory equipment and real yeah. science behind you. Like it's not enough to be a high school science teacher and unravel all of this. Like there's a bit where Jess is on a swing, and for a brief period of time, there's almost this: "Are we making this tree angry?" Mm. Kind of moment where they're like, "I don't know if you should, if we should be on that swing." I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right, and like. So if you wanted to have a serious reading of this film, or if Knighthead wanted to make a more serious film, then there absolutely is one that exists. Mm. In that it does get across the disorientation of not knowing, particularly when they're stuck in this town. So like the train stops and they, yeah. and they're not touched, so they don't know what's going on and they don't have transport and, and they don't know when they're going to get food from. There's also this idea of presumably relatively wealthy New Yorkers having to become refugees which, again, for Americans, that's presumably like a situation and something that we don't see and that's very unusual. Mm -hmm. Um, But also that this is a movie about people fighting not to kill themselves. And that as a concept, Mm. like, you know, in in an era of, like, depression and mental health and all this kind of stuff, that, like, you know, if you wanted to take it as a more serious reading, it's kind of almost like the environment saying, if you don't stop messing with the environment your life is not going to be worth living anymore. It's not going to be worth living at all if you don't, you know, sort out this stuff. So, like, the kind of the concept and, and the almost the grief element of people fighting not to kill themselves, again, would be potentially, like, you know, amazingly powerful. It, it isn't, but, <laughs> you know, yeah. it have been. Yeah, I mean, like, you're right. I think that, like, uh, some of that stuff, obviously, when you kind of, like, draw it back to the film that we get, kind of feels like a bit of a leap but you're right it's like there's potential there for a few like for a few of the kind of commentaries and things that maybe could have landed being a little bit more nuanced but mm. when it lands it's really really good like when they visit that that kind of house that's all boarded up up until yeah, this, kinda, this, this pretty much happens now this yeah, is like pretty much the point up we're until at, yeah. when i guess Wahlberg starts singing and it get the, the tone gets a bit confused again like all the stuff with those guys in there 
um, believing that it was some kind of some kind of government thing or that it's a virus or a chemical, like and and just that kind. It's that not knowing that paranoia that that essentially is killing those guys in there and causes them ultimately to kill two children. Mm. Like, when it lands, it's really really great. It's the stuff the stuff that happens while they're trudging from A to B. To yeah. pass the time is a stuff that you're like, no, just no, 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 no. Right, because a, d- a different movie of this is basically The Road, isn't it? Yeah. Except The Road mm-hmm. is obviously yep. incredibly fucking powerful and depressing and, you know, emotional. Whereas this is almost like The Road, but if it was a stupid comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I do love it. I do love it. I mean, like, I, th- I, think, that you're, I think that you're right. Um, that's the kind of thing that I feel like this is designed to sit alongside. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say that at this point we lose Jared and Josh, and I'm just realizing that we haven't actually stopped to acknowledge who they actually are, who are just kind of two arbitrary teenage ne'er-do-wells that kind of just latch onto them as they go on, and they're in it for probably a sustained period of about 10 or 15 minutes. But yeah, they are shot by the conspiracy theorist guys who are kind of boarded up in one of the houses that they come across. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not going to say good moment because I've advocated for the killing of children often enough already, but an effective moment, for sure, when that <laughs> sure. happens. Yeah. yeah. And the fact in front of Jess as well, that, you know, this eight-year-old girl has just watched two kids be shot virtually point blank in the, in the head and stomach. It's just horrible. Yeah. Yep. And one of those kids, weirdly, I don't know if it was always intended to be played by a kid, but one of those kids seems to exist solely to prod Elliot as to why he doesn't have children yet, which kind of plays into, I guess, what happens right at the end. It's a weird decision as well that one of those kids would dig so deep into why a man in his 30s doesn't have children yet. Yeah, that's a very odd moment, isn't it? And he, and he says, I can't remember exactly what, the, the kid gives him some advice, and Wahlberg kind of goes, oh, thanks very much. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I not know whether he's meant to be being sarcastic or not, but I'm going to guess not, because Mark Wahlberg not funny. <laughs> In this film. Famously <laughs> unfunny Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> the final home of the many homes that we visit uh, in this is the home of Mrs. Jones, um, mm. who kind of seems kind of like sort of endearingly eccentric initially, um, and then very quickly, like almost immediately, not. Incredibly frightening by the end of your exposure to her, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, and and what what's with that creepy doll? Because that's quite a good jump scare, actually, when he's like leaning over the creepy wooden doll, and then ah, she's in the background. Yeah, um, like, I mean that jump scare got me. Like I'm quite happy to hold my hands up and admit that. But like, um, <laughs> yeah, they're they're housed um, with Mrs. Jones for the night, and like, yeah, she's 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 a very strange woman. She kind of like she opens her home to them, then immediately just starts to suspect them of potentially killing her in her sleep or stealing things from her and things like that. So ultimately, it, like kind of like very quickly, she kind of ejects them. From the house but yeah like when he's kind of trying to check on her when he's trying to go and find her and talk to her yeah like and there's like the annabelle doll yeah, mm. yeah. On her bed. i was like dude yeah. this this woman is weird right it's, enough it's weird that when he creeps into the room he speaks to the doll as if it might be her like as if she was a, a three foot like, <laughs> three foot tall old lady um yeah, yeah. Out the night before you're completely right about that and it hadn't struck me at the time but you're so right because it's you know, so he's opening the door. He hasn't looked in. He's so Mrs. Is it Mrs. Jones? Yeah, yeah. No, it's Mrs. Jones. And then he comes quite far into the room, and he's still calling the doll Mrs. Jones. <laughs> it's clearly not. 
not a person. He sees the doll at the same time we do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly not. It's clearly not. <laughs> when she starts, like, uh, I guess, being affected by the happening, and when she starts, like, smashing her head through the windows and stuff, like, that's really nasty and really strong again, like... Mm. he's clearly really good at those moments. Mm. And I mean, I think part of the reason that he got so crucified for this film is that that Sixth Sense is such a perfect film. It's so, so, it really genuinely holds up. It's brilliant. It's nominated for like six Oscars. Mm. And it did the scares really well and all these gross scenes and Marissa Rappiosi and all this kind of stuff. And um, this film is not that, but it's Mm. still got moments and flashes of that kind of brilliance. I don't know. It's almost like people were more cross with him for having bits of genius. Yeah. I think he had such a strong run with those kind of first four films. Like, well, I guess starting from The Sixth Sense, uh, done a couple of things before that, but like mm. starting with The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, The Village and Signs, like th- those are really strong. Then he, it, it, like I say, it does dip a bit with Lady in the Water, but it still mm. like kind of identifiably lives in that universe with those other four films. Then you get this, which. Uh, like you say, it has those those flashes of that stuff in it, but then the rest of it, you're just like, what? What is that? What's this now? This is something different, and I don't know if I'm if I'm into it. But like Mitch, you saw it for the first time today, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Did you enjoy it? Like just enjoyment. I certainly I got more out of it than I expected to. I would say after I kind of like because I'm not a massive M Night Shyamalan fan at the best of times, in all honesty. Um, <laughs> like even the stuff that kind of like when he kind of came full circle and started to pick up that critical acclaim again like um like i'm not a particular fan of the visit or split mm-hmm. um so i didn't i didn't go in with particularly high expectations and i think that like there's there's like large stretches of this don't really work for me for reasons that are kind of like that are just things about road movies and post-apocalyptic movies and things like that that i generally think in a terms of i thought that this was all right um this is kind of like more like like i'm not to spoiler the opinion i'm gonna arrive at, at the end well that's exactly what i'm doing but um uh, <laughs> yeah i think that there's enough moments um or there are enough moments and there's enough kind of engaging stuff even if it is just set pieces and visuals that are gone as quick as they arrive i think that there's just about enough of them to keep you ticking over like i like like i say there was elements where i was like this is silly or that doesn't work but at no point did i check out and that's not true of everything that we watch for this that's true yeah i mean like we are almost at the end of this actually because because like she goes outside uh, mrs jones does she dies so we're kind of led to believe that this is kind of like peak pandemic because it's now affecting groups of one yeah. So we have this kind of moment where uh, Wahlberg, uh, Zoe Deschanel, and Jess kind of ruminate on the fact that they're probably going to die soon. Well, I think you, you need to go into that slight, in slightly more detail because they're a fair distance away talking down a pipe to one another. Yeah. Um, I think Wahlberg's in the house and Jess and Alma are in like an, an outhouse building. They've kind of barricaded themselves in and closed the windows and they're just whispering. This to me is the most interminable bit of the film because really their conversation doesn't really carry any weight. I haven't really believed that they're a couple up to this point anyway. We never really know why their relationship isn't working properly. It can't just be as simple as she kept a pudding date from him. Like, there's a deeper thing going on here, whether it's the issue with them not having children yet, I, I don't really know. But I've never believed them as a couple to this point, and I don't believe them as a couple in this point, and it feels, the dialogue and everything that they're, they're discussing feels kind of slightly trite by this point because I don't believe them. I think you're completely right. And, like, again, to kind of put it in contemporary terms, imagine we're in a world, right, so right now, we're allowed to live with the people we live with. Mm-hmm. 
But imagine if COVID got so that, oh, no, you're not allowed anymore. Actually, it can affect you, just one person. So everybody has to live alone. And you've, you've suddenly discovered this. And it's like you're talking to your loved one. And imagine it's like Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams and not those two. Mm. Basically, yeah, saying, sure. with child, with a kid, basically saying, I would rather die than be alone. It's like it's not worth living if we have to be separate. And like yeah. that would be pretty powerful. Wasn't yeah no, and then uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting that they have that discussion between the two of them, and then completely disregard that really they have this little girl to look after and drag her out into the <laughs> yeah. like into the wind like maybe they were aiming for some kind of is this going to turn out like the ending of the mist kind of mm-hmm. thing like but it just ends on this real downer, but they wander out into the, the wind just as it all ends like or, as the plants mm. chill out. Yeah, and also, well, so the plants totally do chill out, but there's been a, th- a number of times earlier in it where it's almost like they're immune, those three. I think that that was maybe a contributor to me finding the logic of the kind of conditions of the virus to be kind of confusing, because there were times that I was like, now why didn't they get caught by that? Mm. So I'm glad that that wasn't just me fundamentally misunderstanding something, which is my go-to theory anytime something like that confuses me. Um, <laughs> but like, I, and it's I, just I, like I something that everybody say, else can confuse. I have to say, because there's no way they outran wind. They didn't. No. No. Like, no even when you true. see the wind personified, kind of coming to them like in a wave across a cornfield, you're like, you're caught. Just accept your accept your fate that they somehow magically. It's like what is the thing they say? If you're getting chased by an alligator, you should zigzag because they can't turn properly. Mm. It's almost as if they figured out that wind has a t- like a very wide kind of turning circle, so they were able to just kind of double, <laughs> like juke to the right and then double back on themselves a little bit, and the wind will just run away ahead and be like, ah, fuck, outfoxed again. You win this round, Wahlberg. It's just not how wind works. So, yeah, I do understand. You're like, why? Why have these people been completely unaffected by this? Yeah, Rosie, to your point, to answer your question, yes, I absolutely thought there was moments where it felt like they were immune, and I didn't understand why. And like I said, I'm, I'm glad that I am not alone at the table in thinking that. The bold thing um, would have been for one of them to die, like, last, like right at the end. Yeah, well, yes, or it would have been for, like, you know, like the um, under the skin where that awful harrowing scene where the woman goes in and then the man goes in to try and rescue her and they both die leaving the baby on the beach. Oh, God, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What, what a moment. And then, so if it had been both of them had died, Jess hadn't, but was completely on her own and absolutely had no resources to be able to survive, that would be a bleak film. Yeah, that's the ending I want, though. <laughs> kind of. Um, <laughs> yeah, and no, like, like I said, I mean, like, um, the pandemic, as it were, just ends. And mm-hmm. I was kind of like, on the face of it, that's unsatisfying. But also, there's not a, a more satisfying or logical conclusion to why the main antagonist if you like in the film just abates but at the same time i was like well i mean i commented earlier about the fact there's a lot of news and conspiracy theories and a lot of exposition being thrown around on news stations on tv and radio um realistically there's not really another way for the film to do that like i I think that ultimately when it gets to the end it's like well you heard a bunch of conspiracy theories or theories from people at various different levels of education about this and as it turns out one of them stuck mm. like one of the guys on tv was like i think this will peak around about tonight and will be gone by around about tomorrow morning and that guy just happened to be spot on mm. and like that feels arbitrary but also why else is it going to be mm. i'd die mm. out in that forever the fact that i called it that clearly <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no one dies in the end. Well, loads of people die, but none of the big three die. Uh, Jess, uh, Alma, and Elliot all survive. And we get a wee chronology hop to three months in the future. The pandemic has abated, which must be fucking nice. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, yeah, Jess is going back to school, but it is kind of like uh, we do kind of get a, a, a little kind of sting in the tail. <laughs> She's come back to school with a photo of her dad in a silver frame that's hastily jammed into her school bag, like, and a moment of blind panic before she leaves the house. Like, that always jars me as well. I'm like, really? Just what? You're jamming a giant picture of her dad into her bag to go to school on day one? Weird. <laughs> With that, we're basically out on the happening. Except for yeah. France is fucked. Yeah, yeah, the happening in Paris. <laughs> um, that happens at the end of 20, 28 days later, doesn't it? Or is it 28 weeks later? One of them. Yeah, 28 weeks later ends in Paris. Yeah. Interesting. The way everyone launches all their stinger endings at France. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, this, that kind of that kind of brings us over the line, Andy. Uh, I'm guessing it had been a wee while since you'd watched this last. So in 2021, where are you on that? Do you know what? I had more fun with it than I did when I saw it in the cinema. Like I say, it's only the, like the second time I've seen it. Um, okay. I did pay for it again, though, which uh, I didn't. I'd never really seen myself doing uh, <laughs> up until mm-hmm. I actually did it. Do you know what? I, I I'm going to kind of agree with Rosie to an extent here. I think there's a lot of... <laughs> I don't necessarily think it's a good film, but I think there's fun to be had in it. I think that when it works, it's really good. But where it falls down is that it doesn't quite know what it wants to be. Yeah. And I, I'm not even sure that Shyamalan knew what he wanted it to be either. And I feel like kind of in that regard, even maybe even more so than The Last Airbender, it's maybe his biggest wrong like kind of wrong step i think that that's a big statement right what i would say is and i mean like obviously i touched a little bit on what i thought about it throws you when you asked in the main chat but like i think like we've all said that kind of like the principal problem with this film is that it can't decide what it wants to be so if you are considering going to watch this off the back of this conversation what i would advise is choose yourself you settle on a tone you like then you'll find the things that you think it does right and you and that you think it does wrong Mm. if you keep waiting for it to settle on a tone it won't and it'll all look weird i think if you make that decision for yourself you'll at least find some things like you'll like like the things that it gets right will start to stand out a little bit more i don't think i've ever given that advice in 137 (laughs) episodes but that's kind of where i'm landing with that i'm with you i think that's a good point or either that or just accept from the word go that it's basically two films and then you can sort of enjoy the comedy because it is funny it (laughs) genuinely is funny and then sometimes it's really really horrific and they might not separate particularly well so for example like insidious which is a film i really like yep First half, really scary. Second half, really stupid. Yeah, sure. But I knew that was happening because I didn't see it at the first press screening, so I was told. So then when the second half arrives, I'm like, oh, now I don't have to be scared anymore. Great. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. in a way, this isn't like that because it's more of a roller coaster. But, you know, I suppose if you can allow yourself to laugh at it and also be kind of taken in by the spectacle of the horrors of it, then I think... I think you may be in for a good time. Yeah, I mean, I think that like if you if you go in knowing that you have to kind of let your brain toggle between those two things, if you go in knowing that you have to do that, then because I didn't, yeah, then I think that there is room to have fun with it. It's certainly not like the meritless piece of garbage that it seems like it was made out to be at the time. Like far from it. Um, it's not the kind of thing that I could see myself hurrying back to. Although I think that I'll probably watch it at least once more between now and when I die, just with that kind of with that perspective. Um, but as an overall piece of work, it's deeply flawed, but I at no point was like, I'm fed up of this. We've watched mm. worse films in this show. 
A hundred percent, hundred percent. This is this is definitely not in the bottom ten or possibly even twenty percent of things that we've looked at. I had like I had like misgivings as they arise. I said I had no major gripes with this. I thought it was a really interesting choice, Rosie. I'm really glad you chose it. It's not like I would never have watched it. I don't think. Yeah. I think this like this would have just passed me by completely, and I would just never have gone back to it because I'm very ambivalent about M Night Shyamalan. So having the opportunity to go back and look at it and actually. Because I'm getting the impression that there's not that many people out there that love it. So it was nice yeah. to talk to someone that does and kind of get an understanding of that. You know? It's also just reminded me of a, of a mildly amusing Mark Wahlberg anecdote, <laughs> which you mind if I share? away, please do. So this is back when I was working at Total Film and uh, one of our freelancers, who will know who he is, but I'm not going to name him, who's <laughs> <laughs> a very good freelancer, to be fair, was supposed to be interviewing uh, Mark Wahlberg for Transformers 4. Oh. But because freelancer was in the office but because he was a freelancer he doesn't have his own phone so i'd said right well you put my phone through as the, the one and uh you can just sit at my desk and take the interview so great except that uh freelancer x goes out for a fag at literally the point that mark Wahlberg phones oh, no. and it's not his agent or his publicist it's, it's mark Wahlberg. so i'm like uh hello top film where are you speaking and he's like, hi, it's Mark Wahlberg. I can't do an impression. And I'm like, oh. And for some reason, I got it into my head that Americans don't like smoking. Okay. So rather than saying he's gone for a fag, I said, oh, I'm sorry. The guy who's interviewing you is just in the bathroom. And he's like, right. And I'm like, he won't, he won't be long. So then I have to make awkward small talk with Mark Wahlberg while waving my hands at my colleagues to try and get them to go get this eye. it's like, so, um, and I can't ask him about Transformers because I don't want to, you know, yeah. don't want to say anything cool. So I'm saying, what time is it over there then? He's like, morning, you? I'm like, afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing today? And he's like, waiting for an interview. I'm like, yeah, no, of course, of course, of course you are. And then he's like, how long is this guy in the toilet? And I'm like, God. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, <laughs> so no. that was an incredible, it's probably only about four minutes, but it felt like an absolute lifetime until this guy came back and had to explain that he wasn't just having a massive shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would put me, uh, I think it would put me off to know that someone had literally, or to believe that someone had literally dropped one like minutes before, <laughs> like seconds <laughs> before I spoke to them. Like, <laughs> And this is the thing, because I, I really didn't need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, he was annoyed. He was like, I went for a cigarette. That's what I was <laughs> I mean, not... we all poop, right? Yeah. But I want to believe that it's happened. And I know it's happened, but I, I, I just don't want to know that it was that close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I panicked. I don't know, I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, I think actually, just one last thing. I think the the film, this film's biggest problem is its cast, and I'll leave it mm -hmm. at that. That's I think in I, the hands of better actors, this would have been a better film. That's possible. Yeah, although I, uh, yeah, although I still think perhaps it, it was the it's the Shyamalan factor, just because, uh, like I said, Kendall Roy, mm. you know, so national, not a bad actress, but yep. very very bad in this. But yeah, yeah I would say it's it, the performances are the thing that lets it down yeah. certainly. Or whether that was direction or whether that was acting, I don't know. Yeah, so it, <laughs> we know what the problem is. It's a question of who's responsible. <laughs> Rosie, before we wrap up, what's going on at Den of Geek? Um, well, the most exciting thing that's going on at Den of Geek, from my perspective, is we've just launched a new print quarterly magazine. So I'm like Ooh. a massive print nerd, and I, I love print more than anything in the whole world. And so, yeah, we've, it, uh, it went to press last week. And it's free. Wow. Okay. And subscribe. It, uh, if you're outside the US, 
you have to pay postage and you won't be able to get the first issue so you'll have to right okay it's too late now basically, but it, that will be out next week and um, but you will be able to read it online as well so it's it's got super and lois on the cover it's got loads of great content and you'll be able to read it if you want to online or you can actually yeah subscribe and get the print copy for free or for just postage uh charges so that's um yeah i love print so that's me that's my thing awesome. amazing that's that's really exciting yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be quarterly. So the next one's going to be like, um, I think like early May. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, fun, fun times. Cool. Rosie, this has been a lot of fun. I would say that I got more out of the film than I expected to. Thanks for bringing it to the table. Really appreciate it. Um, cool. Where can people get you on social media? On Twitter, I am at Rosarella Fletch. Okay. <laughs> so you can find me there. Sweet. Okay. Rosie, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. It was really fun. So Andy, after the fact, I think it's fair to say that going into this, you were skeptical. You were not particularly struck on the idea of revisiting the happening. Off the back of the conversation, I think that from Rosie's perspective, that could have gone a lot worse. I think it could have. Um, and you made a call, Mitch, that I did say that my plan was actually to revisit the happening, but to revisit it as an irredeemable episode. And you know what? I don't think it is irredeemable. Uh, I don't <laughs> haven't revisited it now. Not just relying on my memories and the kind of general opinion of the happening. Yeah, I think there's more to like in the happening than there is to hate. It's it's, it's goofy and it's stupid and there's humour where humour shouldn't be, but it's definitely not irredeemable. Far from it. It's it's and it's definitely it's a class above the films that we've covered for that by like by a distance. I would say. Oh, I think that I think that if we were going to cover it, then the main episode was definitely the right way to do it. And thank you to Rosie Fletcher of Den of Geek, yeah, for stepping up and being the one that did that. Uh, that was a great time. So I guess we're done. Yeah, Once another again. one bites the dust. Yeah, but we're never far away. We're back on Monday, of course, with another mini-sode. Have you picked slash watched your Nature Gone Wild film for this week? I have. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ask any more than that. Like, because uh, I think that like you are on a pretty good. You're on a pretty good kind of point right now off the back of Jalakati. I've got to say that is not going to carry through to this week's episode. <laughs> a short-lived peak. Yeah, like I said, a lot of these films are bad, and that's unavoidable. And when something looks good on the surface, doesn't necessarily mean it translates into the substance of the film. And uh, that's certainly true of my pick this week. Okay. Um, yeah, wildly divergent quality is very much par for the course of the side quest, I think. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, we will also be taking a look at what we've been watching. We will be uh, taking a look at your feedback as well, playing Mitch's pitches, letting you know everything you need to know for next week. All the usual stuff. If you want to get in touch between now and then, you can, of course. Facebook and Instagram, we are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC, and you can email Scenes at gmail.com. Don't forget, also, we've got Facebook group, The Child Locker. Pretty much head on to Facebook, search the Chud Locker, you'll find us. Unsurprisingly, we're the first thing that comes up. <laughs> Good that we're coming out tops and some table somewhere. Finally, yeah, yeah. Finally. Finally a gold medal. Yeah, we've got a Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash strong language violent scenes. Bunch of stuff there, bunch of stuff inbound. If anyone's looking for me on social media, I am taking a sabbatical from social media. Uh, yeah, something I think that we could all stand to do every now and again. Yeah, so you will not find either Andy Makes Stuff or Andy Stewart Makes Stuff 
on Twitter or Instagram at the moment. But I won't be gone long. I'm just taking a breather. A bit of self-care. Yep, nothing wrong with that. However, you can find me on Instagram as EverTheOptimitch and on Twitter as who else but Mitch? Should you want to. <laughs> like, you can leave those things as mutually exclusive as you want. I'm not an interesting person. <laughs> If you want to help us spread the word, you can, of course, rate, review, subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, or simply just tell your pals. We would really like that. Yep, that would be great. However, word spreading or not, we will be back on Monday with another mini So Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.